I am calling, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, for a cultural revolution. Not of the political kind. We've heard enough of that garbage out there uh, through the last number of months as all of the political candidates have come forward and said, here's what we need to do. You need me to lead you. I'm calling for a cultural revolution within this church and really within all churches in 21st century America. I I, I told you a couple of weeks ago that you would hear this phrase in a recurring way, that that I would repeat the statement that is actually the thesis of the whole series that we're going to be in uh, from now until after Labor Day even to lay out these pillars that we need to build our culture on as a church. Here's the statement that I promised, uh, and I hope that it begins to get ingrained in you. The values that we embrace create a culture that supports the identity that we affirm. The values that we embrace, those pillars, if you will, create a culture And the culture that we build here supports the identity that we affirm. Here's the problem with the statement. That statement is stated in the ideal. It's stated in such a way that says we have the right values. And because we have the right values, we've created the right culture in order for us to affirm that identity that is ours. We know the identity. It's not up to us to choose who we are. Jesus Christ himself, scripture is clear about who we are. The question always is, are we living up to our identity? And I would say in the 21st century American church, and ours is not excluded from this, that we have lived down to a lesser identity. So we need this revolution. We need to come back to restate our values that drive us and build a culture because it's very possible that the culture that we are building could be contrary to the gospel itself. So this umbrella is the first of these pillars. Now, each, what, I, what I really hope to do with this is, is to develop some stuff that we can put around the campus here For each of these pillars and values that we're going to talk about, that that we can place them around the campus so that they are not just something that the preacher said a long time ago, but that rather they become ingrained in us, that we have a DNA transplant if necessary to get to the place that we need to go. And so that's what I'm pushing for. And this umbrella is symbolic because of one thing that I just talked to you about, the caring for people to keep them dry as they get into the building may sound like a small thing, but it says something to people. But there's another element to this umbrella icon that we adopt today. And that is that for the next five weeks or so, or the next five times I preach, we intend to hang a number of values underneath this one. So this first one becomes that overarching value that begins to express itself in a number of different ways. I go to Leviticus 19 as the beginning point for this, but before we get to the passage, let me make sure that I'm connecting with you well on why this is important. I found myself this week in one of those uh, challenging situations 
It is that situation that says, I am not at home, I am not at the office, and I need coffee now. Now, some of you, I know, struggle with that same problem. And and so I do what many of you do, and that is I went into one of these places where the coffee obviously is brewed in a golden urn because of the price that they charge for that coffee. And so I pull into the parking lot and I exit my vehicle and I start walking across the parking lot only to see my wife walking from the other side of the parking lot, going to the same place. Now, the way that translates out, just so you know, is that means I got to buy her coffee that day, okay? But here's, here's the deal. To make the point that I'm trying to drive at, that we, got, we have to get the culture part of it right or we're going to do more damage than good. So we go into this coffee place, and they're struggling to keep up. It's a high coffee day apparently, for a lot of people. And so we stood in line for a long time, long time. And and the reason I know that is because I stood there long enough to get, well, now see, the word that I want to use is enraged, right? But I know I'm in a church group, so I I got a little disturbed about the, the woman standing immediately behind me. Now, I'm sure she was a nice lady and all that, or a woman. I don't know if she's a lady or not, but um, I, I do know that the practice that she was involved in was as big a turnoff against Christianity as I have encountered in a long time. Now, in case you're not aware of it, whether I do it or not, well, uh, I am a pastor. I preach. And so this lady behind me has her cell phone out. And I don't mean out like here. I mean out. And she has it jacked up as loud as it'll go, one of those speaker kind of a moment. Let me just say to you, public service announcement, talk into your phone from here and mute it as much as you can, okay? Because nobody else wants to hear your conversations. In this case, though, this lady wasn't having a conversation. She was listening to her pastor preach over her phone. Now, I'm sure that it was one of those download podcasts, whatever it was, but I want you to know, as a pastor, as a preacher, I was deeply, okay, I want to say offended, but I know what I'm going to say later in the sermon, so let me use a different word. I was turned off to the church based on her actions. Now, I would like to say that the guy was a great preacher and that made it easy, But I got to tell you, I couldn't even hear the sermon he was preaching because I was bothered by her cramming it down our ears. That's bad enough when a preacher feels that way. I I did not say anything to you. I'm sure some of you you wonder, did you say, what did you say to her? I didn't say anything to her because I knew I couldn't say anything well. But I watched the people in front of me. I'm relatively sure some of them were not Christian people or at least they didn't present themselves as such. But I'll guarantee you they were offended by that lady's behavior. It's easy for us on the inside to justify our behavior with people on the outside. And it would be easy 
to say to that situation, well, you know, maybe somebody heard the gospel because she was doing that. Maybe, you're right. But if we're going to play the maybe game, maybe we should also say maybe she turned some people off to the gospel with that. See, one of the things that Christians are really good at, and that is not a compliment, is that is we have a way of justifying some of our behavior because it's internal to our culture, and our culture is turning off people outside our culture. I know one of the justifications that we have for that is we say, well, you know, they, that's because they're, they don't know the Lord and they, they're just not ready for that. Okay, then why are we cramming it down their throats the way we do? Oh, did I tell you this was not a comfortable sermon today? So I had another situation this week, and this one cuts to the heart of the pillar that we'll talk about here shortly. I had a piece of machinery at my house broke down, and um, I was going to fix it myself, and my wife, uh, <laughs> she's seen that picture show before, so uh, she reminded me that when we bought this particular piece of machinery, we spent some money on the service plan so that I wouldn't fix it. And uh, so we called, and the company that we bought it from sent a repairman out to the house, and uh, so I stood and I talked to him while he worked. I'm really good at watching people work. So... Um, so as I stood and talked to him and actually helped him a little bit, he started to tell me about his employment. And he was not local to Lumberton as far as I know. I know that the company is not local to Lumberton. So, um, but here's a gentleman, and I liked him a lot. Uh, and he's worked for this particular company for decades. I mean, multiple decades he's worked for this company. And he's right on the threshold uh, of, of retiring. And uh, so in the conversation, he let it kind of come out that he didn't really want to retire, uh, except that the company that he had worked for, this was a national company, uh, had changed so much in the 40 years that he no longer could justify to his customers, the actions of his management. And so he said, I just decided that it's not worth it to me. I can keep doing what I'm doing on my own, but I don't have to keep answering for the, to disgruntled customers about the way my bosses run the company. Now, let me tell you something. That's, that's instructive for us as church people. Because every action that we take in the name of Christ leaves a mark somewhere. So what I want to do today is focus on what it looks like when we get it right. I don't want to just stand up here and say, okay, here's where we're wrong, here's where we're wrong, here's where we're wrong. Because we may not be wrong in all the ways that others are. So let's, instead of looking at how we do stuff wrong, let's look at how Jesus did stuff correctly. But before we get to Jesus, now we're to that Leviticus chapter, right? And I know Leviticus is one of those books that you rarely hear preachers uh, do sermons from. And the reason for that is because it's the book of Leviticus. You go read it and you'll understand that. It's kind of some of that stuff where you go, okay, yeah, that's a rule, that's a law. It's part of the holiness code where we pick it up right here on how you should live and all of those kind of things. And, and, and so it comes out 
this, this statement that it seems kind of hidden away and it seems like it's not that big a deal. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. I'm in the book of Mark, so maybe I should get over to Leviticus. Leviticus 19, 18, and here's what the law, what God said to Moses, you shall not take vengeance. Oh, all right, stop. You with me for a second? I'm sorry to do this like in the middle of it. Stop. But a couple of weeks ago, I talked to you about values, and I talked about road trammel family values. Some of you will remember that. One of those family values is you squirt me with a water gun, I run over you with my truck. Okay? Road trammels don't play to get even. We play to get ahead. And so that's one of those values. Here's another one. Road trammel family value. Forgive and forget. But always remember. Okay, you know, here's why I'm reminding you of those. Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance. Does that square with road trammel family values? You see why Leviticus is a clean part of my Bible? Here's the next one. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. All right, so let's just put Leviticus aside. You hear, you hear though, those are so much a part of how we live. I, I'm not the only one who does the vengeance thing. We, we tip our hat to the Christian label and live as if we don't trust God to know what he's talking about on how to live. And so he lays those things out. Don't do those things. And if I could just be really honest with you for a a little bit here, uh, most of the problems that I deal with in a church setting have to do with those two things. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Tucked away, seemingly innocent there, And yet that little innocent phrase, but you shall love the Lord your God, excuse me, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, finds its way all the way through the New Testament. Now before I get to those New Testament references, let me just make sure that you get it. In my Bible here, you shall love the Lord, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, ends there with a colon. Not a semicolon, but a colon, which means what comes next is intimately tied to it. I am the Lord. You see, I think God knew. (laughs) How's that for a dumb statement? I think God knew. God knows us. And he knows us and our human nature so well that when it comes to something like this, you will love your neighbor as yourself. He felt it necessary to say, by the way, I am the Lord. This is an authoritative word from heaven itself. Which means it needs to bear weight with us. And so we jump over to the New Testament and that little phrase becomes so well established in our thinking throughout the course of the New Testament. We find it, by the way, if you want these, I'll give them to you later. Just ask me, but, uh, or listen online and you'll get them. Romans chapter 13, verse 9, Paul pulls that you shall love your neighbors yourself into the New Testament. Galatians 5, 14, James 2, 8, Jesus himself, and at least these two uh, instances in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 19, 19, and Matthew 5, 43, this idea of loving your neighbor as you love yourself is not 
optional for us, even if it happens to go against the culture we have built. You know, it's important. It's so important that we find it all through Scripture, but most markedly we find it in the book of Mark, chapter 12. So let me invite you to go there, and you can just camp out here. I'm going to give you some other passages on some other things as we work through the next few minutes, but uh, this is where we begin. The reason that we find it in the book of Leviticus as God lays out for his people, here's how you're going to live your life with each other, love your neighbor as yourself. It comes through into the New Testament and Paul quotes it and James quotes it and Jesus himself quotes it, but it comes to this point, Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which commandment? is the most important of all. And how did Jesus respond to that? We've heard this many times here. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Put God first. Always put God first. But see, that's not enough with Jesus. He answered their question. But as is always the case, Jesus gives them more than they bargained for. Because he jumps then, we find in verse 31, the second commandment is this. Not just the second commandment, but the second greatest commandment is this. And he quotes Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And so what we should get from this is that this is not an accidental teaching. When I first discovered this, the, how it stretches all through scripture. I was reading and I, I'd come across the, the importance of Leviticus nineteen eighteen, And it's almost like every time I sat down to study my Bible, it, it jumped up again. Love your neighbors yourself. Sometimes it wasn't stated exactly like that, but it's always there. And I was going, that's amazing that it's there. And then I thought, well, why would it be amazing? Jesus said, it's the second greatest commandment. Of course it's all through scripture. I'm intrigued why love your neighbor as yourself is all through scripture but not all through churches. So what we have established here is that for God, uh, people are important. People matter. And if that's true with God, it's got to be true with us and so we must then handle people with care. That's the pillar here. People Matter, that's got to be a value statement that we hold and we embrace and it informs every little piece of how we do life as a church. People matter. And so we have to handle them well and handle them with care. But let me, let me show you, uh, I'm going to kind of play Jesus uh, and his experience with church people and then with unchurched people. Let me just kind of lay this out for you in a couple of different examples, and then we'll move on from this because I think you know, we're, we're already deep into it. First of all, in Matthew chapter 23, we, we have this ongoing, um, what's the right word? Judgment, I guess, is maybe not a bad way to say it. Jesus comes up against the religious leaders of his day, scribes, Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, Jesus gives these series of scathing judgments against them. 
It starts off with that strong statement, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And we have this series of them, but I'm just going to give you two of them, and then I'm going to offset those with some ways Jesus dealt with people. So in the first one, Matthew 23, verses 13 and 14, I'll read it for you. I don't think it's going to be on screen, but verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So Jesus is talking to those religious authorities of his day and he's charging them with this heinous crime of people wanting to come into the kingdom of God, people wanting to live the way God called them to live in relationship with himself and yet the religious people and leaders especially were the ones who said, no, 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 you can't do that. Now, they would have said, now, we just tell them they can only do it the right way, which means you can't do that. So let's set that one off against Mark chapter 3. Because in Mark chapter 3, we have this encounter. Remember, the context of Matthew that we just saw is these religious leaders keeping people out. Mark chapter 3, the first six verses... Read this way, and again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, that is the religious leaders, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So these are the same people that Jesus would say later to, you are keeping people out of the kingdom. And now we find them doing that, even with Jesus himself. Let's just see if he doesn't cross the line and we'll cross him out. Verse 2. Excuse me, verse 3. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. I like this because Jesus refuses to play the religious games of religionists. And he said to them, that is to those religious leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or kill it? But they were silent. You know why they were silent? Because Jesus had them by the neck. And he looked around at them with anger. Let me just stop for a minute and let the words of that verse ring through to the deepest part of us. A lot of religionists would like to make Jesus out to be the biggest pansy that ever lived. Just all love and flowers and good smelly things. Tell you something. Jesus was a man's man. And when it was appropriate, he jumped right square in the middle of people who didn't care about people. And Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. So we have this contrast between the woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you're keeping people out of the kingdom of God, like this guy with the withered hand, like Jesus himself. And so Jesus steps into the need and he says, I am your supply. And he heals the guy. And you would think that there would be a parade for a guy who could do that. But the next verse just drives home why Jesus would later give them those woes. Look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. You see, 
the problem with religion that is built on wrong values and the culture that it creates is that it has no room for this Jesus who loves people and meets them in their need. Matthew 23, again, verses 27 and 28, Jesus uncorks on them again. Verses 27 and 28, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so Jesus jumps in to the middle of their nice, clean, structured, ordered religion. And he calls them dead. But the worst kind of dead. This is the true walking dead when you get right down to it. And so we contrast those guys with Jesus over in Mark chapter 5. And I'm not going to take the time to read this, but Mark chapter 5 is the account where Jesus goes to the region uh, where there is this guy who is demon-possessed. It's the Gerizim demoniac. And so we find this story where this guy is so demon-possessed and it so controls his life that he's found himself an outcast from society. He lives, by the way, you know any people like that in our day? Not so much on the demon possession side, although that might be a good discussion for us to have, but certainly on the outcast from society. So outcast were they that even religionists would have nothing to do with them. And so Jesus says, hey, let's go over there. And you know those disciples going, man, there's that nut, that, that nutcase lives over there. We don't want to go over there. And Jesus said, no, that's exactly where we need to go. So he goes in and he confronts this guy. Remember the story how he begins to speak and the demons speak back to him and uh, what's your name? Legion for we are many. And so Jesus starts to hammer down on the demons and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. How about instead of throwing us in the pit, why don't you just throw us in those pigs over there? And the pigs go off the cliff. You remember that? Hello? Are y'all there? All right. So on one hand, we have Jesus scolding, if you will, Scribes and the Pharisees for being dead on the inside and living like they are whitewashed tombs. And on the other side, we have a guy who's living among the tombs who is dead on the outside, even though he lives. And Jesus walks into his need because people matter to God. And he frees him from that oppression. So much so that that ex-demoniac says essentially, hey, I'm coming with you. (laughs) And Jesus says, no, maybe you ought to stick around here and tell those other people. Whitewashed tombs or delivered from the tombs. You see, religion sets us up to live like Jesus doesn't care about people. You ever stop and ask yourself why we have all these miracle stories in the Bible? You think Jesus did, just did a bunch of miracles so that he could be sure that he made the book when it was getting written? I think sometimes we approach them that way. 
Well, yeah, of course we have that. You know, we, there's 5,000 people that were fed. There's just hardly any food there, and Jesus feeds them. That, that's so we can know that he, we can trust him. You know, that's true enough. I don't think that's the end reason that Jesus fed the multitudes. Why did he heal the guy that we talked about? Why did he deliver the other guy uh, from the demonic oppression? Why did, why did Jesus do all these things? Here's my best answer. I think that because Jesus, God in the flesh, cared about people just like God. The Father cares about people. He went to where people were. He encountered people in their need, and he stepped into the need, and he fixed it. It wasn't just so that he could make the book. I mean, that's, that's book-worthy stuff. Of course we should write that down. But don't miss the fact that all of those things happen because Jesus is stepping into the need, usually with people that the religion professionals wouldn't deal with anymore. People matter. So we have to handle them with care. And our culture doesn't always do that. This... Love your neighbor as yourself is where the cultural revolution has to begin because it's where God starts with us. Now, I will tell you, Jesus did give a first greatest commandment, and that's the one that drives this one. Let's be careful that we don't hear this and in our secular Christianity jump in and say, well, okay, well, I'm going to do that because the reality is we can't do that. If we don't get God in his proper place in our lives, we'll never pull this off. But you see, it's a lot easier to have just that nice little neat little system that we say, okay, I've seen that in scripture. I'll check, I believe that. Okay, I acknowledge that. Uh, and then we move through life without that making a difference in our lives. So how do we get it right? Here's the easy answer. We need to attach ourselves to Jesus. That's really simple, except it's really not that simple. The answer is simple. The doing it is daily work. We attach ourselves to Jesus. How many of you were part of the WWJD movement of yesteryear? Come on, own up. Testify to God. You had the little bracelet. What would Jesus do? Uh, and so we spend all of this energy. Well, I, I never did that because I'm much more superior than that. Isn't that... Isn't that isn't that how we do stuff like that in church-wise? We set ourselves off from other people? The WWJD movement was that one that said, okay, so when I find myself in a situation, I ask myself this question, what would Jesus do? Uh, and there, there were issues with that. I at least applaud the effort behind it. But here's one of my issues with it. It set us up for humanistic Christianity. If we know that Jesus would do this, okay, so I'll go do that. But you know, the reality is if I'm just asking what would Jesus do, I don't need Jesus for me to do that. And that's the way a lot of people approached it. Okay, so we'll just do the Jesus kind of stuff. I think we should change that and go with what, with what I call the HWJB. And that is to the point of all that I've said so far. How would Jesus be? Because if we take care of the bee, the do follows suit. If we attach ourselves as an apprentice to Jesus. Now, we use that fancy biblical word as a disciple. But the idea is being an apprentice. To attach ourselves to him. He is, in fact, Lord. 
Savior to be sure. Lord, he is God in the flesh. He taught us what it means to walk with God and to see what walking with God does as it bleeds out into every part of our lives. That's not religion. That's strictly relationship. And so if we ask ourselves that question on a day-in, day-out basis, how would Jesus be? The answer is Jesus would be connected with the Father as we see all through Scripture and enabled him to do the things that he did, and it always pushed people to the front of his agenda. So here's a couple of questions. Let me ask our musicians to come on up as we draw this to a close. Failure for us in attaching ourselves to Jesus leaves us and the people in our circles lacking in life. If we are not attached then something's missing. And if we're not attached, we start attaching ourselves to other things like little causes and little movements and little traditions. And we try to make them more than they are by putting Jesus' name on them. Jesus calls us to attach ourselves to him. We are his apprentices. In my office... I have several pictures that are posted right next to the door. They are there because every time I walk out the door, I look at those things because it reminds me some things about who I'm supposed to be. One of those pictures there is a picture from one of the space shuttles as it looked down over the top of a hurricane. So it's one of those hurricane pictures from space. And I have it there because it reminds me that when I step out of my office, invariably I'm stepping into somebody's life who's in the middle of some terrible storm. And the storm itself is important to me for those people. But the message for me is my job, my calling is to live in the center, in the eye where there's peace. You see, I'm a peace agent in people's lives. But you know what? You are too if you say you're a Christian. You're called to be a peace agent in a world of lives that are hurricanes. But if people don't matter to you, you can go through life and look at people going through the storm and say, yeah, it's all good because I'm good. So that reminds me when I step out that I need to be peaceful. I need to be in a position to bring peace to the storm for people. There's another picture outside of my office or inside my office as I'm walking out. It comes from a lady who was one of my youth workers many years ago. And as I talked about a life verse for me, I talked about it so often that she decided she would cross stitch that and frame it and so she gave it to me as a gift about the time we were leaving that church and it's the passage out of Matthew chapter 9 where it says Jesus looked out and he saw the crowds you see part of what we need to get is this whole heart of God people matter is we need to learn how to see people Jesus saw them it says and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd 
and he stepped into their need. How is it with you? Are you a peace agent? Or do you go around sowing seeds of hurricane? Are you one who sees people and responds in compassion? Or have you just had your fill of people? I wonder, what would it take for you to walk away from the church? You'd be surprised at how often preachers reach that point. You know, I don't, I don't think I've ever heard anybody who walked away from the church say, I walked away because I'm not sure about that whole Jesus thing. Never heard anybody say that. Talked to a lot of people, some friends, close friends, family members of mine that have just walked away from the church. Never once have I heard some of them say, it's because I don't believe that Jesus stuff. Usually they walk away because the culture of the church beat them up, kicked them while they were down, and said, you can't be here. Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, challenges us with this statement. Much time is spent among Christians trying to smooth over hurt feelings and even deep wounds, both given and received, and to get people to stop being angry, retaliatory, and unforgiving. But suppose, Willard says, suppose instead that we devoted our time to inspiring and enabling Christians and others to be people who are not offendable and not angry and who are forgiving as a matter of course. Man, what a revolution that would be in a church. And then he adds... As he goes for the jugular with them, he adds this statement. From Psalm 119, verse 165. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing shall offend them. You see, what the psalmist knew and what Willard points to is this basic truth. When we attach ourselves to Jesus as true disciples... Not as a cause, not as a movement, but as a person attached to him and he teaches us how to be. We will begin to see people like he does and we will begin to respond to people like he does. And there's no room for offense because some other knucklehead didn't pronounce your name right or whatever it is that offends you about people. Because we see them as people in the storm. We see them as people in need of peace. We see them they matter and we handle them with care how is it with you let's pray and as we pray I'll ask you this question are you an apprentice of Jesus are you living your life allowing him to inform every step of the way father take this time of invitation change lives is our prayer Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, you guys.